a listener production. This is From Zero, where I get the real stories behind some of Australia's best business successes. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost half a billion dollars annually without raising a dollar of outside capital. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak with Chris Lucas from Lucas Restaurants. I don't have to compromise by having to worry about shareholders or raising capital anywhere. I get to, to do whatever crazy idea I want. We put I put up my own money and if it succeeds, it succeeds. If it doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm the one that carries the can, but it gives me the creative freedom to do what I want. When you think hospitality, you don't necessarily think multi-million dollar career. But Chris Lucas is reinventing what it means to create a successful hospitality empire with his group, Lucas Restaurants. He's the guy behind some of the most successful restaurants, not just in Melbourne or even Australia, but around the world. His star-studded resume includes Chin Chin, Hawker Hall, Society, The Botanical, and One Fitzroy Street. And hospitality is literally in Chris's blood. He's the son of Greek migrants who moved to Australia after the First World War. They settled in Geelong, and his dad spent most of his life running pubs. Chris took more of a roundabout path to his own hospitality career, and it started when he was just a teenager, working with and learning from his dad. My father worked for himself his whole life and was in, effectively in small business his whole life, as were uh, his brothers uh, who were refugees from the, after the, um, the First World War. And uh, they were part of the first wave of immigrants that came to Australia back in 1923, actually. And so, yeah, I, my father, you know, ingrained some core principles and beliefs into me and, uh, you know, they were all about the core beliefs that any other small business person would have, which is, you know, you, you get on with things rather than complain. Uh, you can control your outcomes rather than allow others to control your outcomes. And I think the most important thing my father taught me was that I should always be in control of my own destiny. I should never allow circumstances or other people to potentially control my own destiny. Uh, so, you know, I've always had that as a, uh, as a sort of a core principle. At the end of the day, you know, I, th- I think those sort of foundations are, are critically important for young people as they, as they grow up because uh, I think we've lost our way a little bit as the decades have gone on where perhaps a, a younger generation now have a different view on what entrepreneurship is all about and, and you know, getting on and, and starting businesses. And I'm a little worried about where that's all heading, but hopefully this Australia is still a great entrepreneurial country. And uh, I think the other thing, one of the other things that had a huge influence on my life at a very early age, when I'm in early age, early age in terms of my working life, I joined IBM and I, I, I was lucky enough to go to America at a young age. I was about 22, I think, as a young trainee. And uh, I was I was really captured by the the spirit of entrepreneurship in uh, in America, you know, the great bastion of of, of the free world, and uh, I uh, while America has has its issues, it's still today, you know, 
a country that's created so much intellectual and, and financial capital because it's, it's a country where it's champions risk takers and cha- champions entrepreneurship, champions risk, you know, risking capital. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that uh, that had a huge impact on me as well. I think one, one thing that, that a lot of successful people grapple with, and, and I guess you're not exception, you grew up in far less uh, wealth than, than, than you currently have now, obviously been very successful. Very middle class family, yeah. Yeah, and so how do you think about um, your kids who obviously – have a lot of advantages that, that you didn't have, but also as a result, almost a lot of disadvantages because they, they haven't had to struggle potentially like like you did. So what's the – and you see a lot of successful people grapple with this question as how do you give your kids the best possible life while still instilling that hunger? Well, I, I made sure from a very, very young age that they were in many ways um, made to earn a dollar and value a dollar. I ensured that all my kids – at, you know, as soon as they could actually start to work while they were still at school, and I'm talking about, you know, when they were around 14, that they, they were sent out to, to find work and not work in the family business but actually sent out to find work, part-time work. And that was the best thing I could instil in the kids because they learned at a very young age that uh, I wasn't going to give them, you know, swathes of pocket money or a credit card or a free phone. Uh, I made them earn every one of those things. I made them buy their own phone. I made them mow lawns. Uh, I had, you know, I, my sons got jobs as builders, labourers on sites. You know, yeah. uh, picking up rubbish and 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 working with everyday with with hands and and working with everyday people and and learning uh, what it's like to be in the real world. And that uh, core belief that my father instilled in me, I passed that on to my kids. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, I didn't over endow them with lavish a lavish lifestyle at all. To be honest, a better lifestyle, of course, than what I had. But mm. you know, we certainly didn't go overboard. We were always cognizant, my wife and I, of, of making sure that, that the kids had a uh, a sound footing in the real world. I think when you were when you were twelve, I think you spent I think I read somewhere you spent a year on a Greek island with your mum. Uh, what was what was that experience like as a as a young kid leaving Australia? Well, for me, it was, uh, it was an amazing experience because uh, it was my first time ever overseas and uh, it was very memorable because, as, as I said to you, it was a, virtually a whole year. And, uh, you know, I got to see where my parents grew up and uh, I got a connection with, with the homeland, so to speak, and uh, it was quite a rural setting. So, you know, I, I learned about how people survive and in these rural outposts and on the islands of Greece, and uh, yeah, it was for me. It was a fascinating learning experience, a real life experience that you probably wouldn't otherwise get in the classroom. That's for sure. A few years later, very tragically, your your dad had a heart attack um, when he was very young, uh, and obviously you were you were only I think fifteen at the time, um, and, and it left you, your mum raised you and and your, your I think your brothers on a uh, on a widow's pension. Uh, funny enough, I think there's a really interesting correlation between. Um, kids who suffered great tragedy, especially losing a, a father, and very success being a very successful entrepreneur. There's this incredible correlation there. Hey, so, how did that impact you as a kid? And did you think that almost kickstarted your entrepreneurial journey? Did that make you more risk taking? How, how did that sort of leave leave you going forward? Look, obviously, that was a very significant trauma in my life at a very young age. What we had discovered, which 
Uh, we didn't know because my father had kept it away from us was that the, the family business was in financial trouble and we had to basically sell everything to survive. Mm. That was also very traumatic. So I, I suffered the loss of my father at a very young age and at the same time, you know, we had a huge financial trauma as well to go with it. My mother spoke limited English and brought me up on a widow's pension, pension and mm. I, I went straight to work at 15. I was working two jobs at night uh, while still going to school and for me that was a defining moment. While it was it was pretty tough, uh, it was a baptism, a baptism of fire and it mm. gave me a steely resolve to go on and succeed in life and uh, I think that when you have a trauma like that at such a young age, you can go one of two ways, of course. Mm. I guess in some ways what my, my, my father and the support from my mother gave me was that I could get up and get on with life and uh, rather than, than sort of mine myself in the, in the sadness of what was happening, I, I just took the bit between the teeth and, uh, and uh, fought for survival. And I think that was a lesson that you couldn't, you couldn't teach again mm. anywhere else. It, it just it had to happen. It was a life experience and, you know, uh, I was determined to not let it set me back. You finished school and you started a, a chemistry or a pharmacy degree at, at Monash Uni, which sounds like a, a very academic, uh, a very academic path compared to obviously you eventually became the hustle and bustle of hospitality sometime later. But were you always planning to be sort of the more that academic path, or was this a, a sort of short term means to an end that you never really wanted to be a chemist? <laughs> Something to do? No, that's, that's spot on. Actually, I mean, look in those days there was very limited job careers, so to speak. It's not like it is today. So especially uh, parents from ethnic backgrounds, you know, they, they, they wanted their, in particular, their, their sons to either be a doctor or a lawyer or a counselor. Yeah. They were sort of the choices and none yeah. of those things really resonated with me. So really I just, I, I, I sort of just dropped into a course that just to keep my mother happy to be more than anything. And yeah. I quickly realised it wasn't for me, but I completed it. And got on with it, and uh, really, for me, the, defi- the again the de- another defining moment in my life was that uh, I didn't really see this as a career for me. So I, I I happened to be lucky enough to be on campus when IBM came along and was interviewing, and I yeah. had a job as a trainee salesman, and that uh, that had that had a profound effect on my young life. Uh, you know, I got to join <clears throat> at the time the most dynamic and the world's biggest computer company, and. Uh, you know, they trained me, they flew me all over the world and, you know, it kick-started my career. Yeah, I think that the IBM experience is, is, a, is really interesting. I think most people think of you as this, this obviously amazing restaurateur, but you had a long corporate career uh, and IBM was the – back in 81, IBM was sort of the half Microsoft, half Amazon, half Apple. It was, it was the corporate uh, at the time, the global corporate. How did you fit in there? Were you, were you a natural fit for such a, a – an organisation of that scale, and did you sort of move through the ranks pretty, pretty quickly? Um, yes, I mean, look, you know, uh, I had a very successful career. I progressed. I think I was the, I was put on a fast track in terms of management development. I became, I think, one of the youngest marketing managers in the company's history here in Australia, uh, and then I went on and became a, a senior executive in the company at a very young age. Uh, and so, yeah, and I had a I had a terrific start to uh, my career but I quickly also worked out that perhaps the corporate life wasn't necessarily for me because as I said to you I had that sort of entrepreneurial pang in me which led me to go off and uh, uh, and start my own 
telecommunications company with some other partners and uh, today known as Primus Telecommunications and that was very successful and then, you know, so uh, I, uh, I lasted, I think it was about 10 years at IBM and then, I, and then I moved on when I was about 30. Chris was one of the four partners who came together to build the massive telco that was called Primus. They'd all had successful careers in IT before, so we were able to scrape together enough money to start the business. Primus became one of the few brands that were really challenging Telstra's dominance in the late 1990s and early 2000s, and they started at the perfect time. Telcos around the world were being deregulated, and broadband internet was just taking off. And in just a few years, they went from zero to $600 million in annual sales. This allowed them to float Primus on the NASDAQ at a valuation of a few hundred million dollars. It would go on to eventually become worth billions. Chris was in his mid-30s, had a young family, and already lived all around the world by this time. And after floating, Chris sold his shares in Primus and moved back to Australia to make the next big move in his career. Chris settled back in Melbourne, started doing property development, and then decided to follow his great love, hospitality. I always had a passion for food since I was a young boy working with my father, you know, and uh, I, while I had a very successful corporate career, I, I always had a long pain for, you know, the food business. And as it turned out, it was, it, it, it was, a, it was a more by accident than planning that I ended up actually owning my first restaurant. So, you know, there was, uh, it was a moment in time where I thought, you know, I might just do this for a few months and then sort of <laughs> move on. But I, I realised that I really loved it, and uh, you know, it's it's an it's interesting that once you sort of, you know, you make a bit of money and you get a bit of success, you think about what passions do you really want to pursue in your life. I was lucky that I was still very young and I was able to pursue something that I truly loved, which was the food industry. I was uh, fortunate enough to sort of find my way into it, and. The rest is sort of history, I guess. You know, we had, we've, I've had sort of, like, I've been lucky enough to open lots of places now, and uh, each one of them has been successful in their own right, touch wood, which is also very rare in our industry. And it also came at a time when uh, the food industry was modernising and changing itself. It was restaurants were becoming very fashionable, and they were the, they they had transformed themselves from sort of like the corner pub to. You know, everyday exciting type restaurants like Chin Chin and so forth. And they became the new black, I guess, you know, where a whole new generation of diners was coming through. And so it was another very exciting place to be in. But this time I was, not that I wasn't passionate about my previous life, but this one had a much more sort of uh, organic feel about it, you know, something that resonated with me back to my childhood. So I was, uh, you know, I was really quickly ensconced in it. And I loved it from day one. The pivotal point is the decision to, to start and, and what you do when you – ideas are cheap, if it's an idea, but actually making it happen is, 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 the, is the secret sauce. And so you start – you're this incredibly successful entrepreneur. You start One Fitzroy Street. What do you do? You, you find a – because you're not a chef yourself. I don't think you, if you have to find a chef. You have to find a front of house. How do you learn all that stuff when there's no guidebook to, to do it? <laughs> well, it's just like anything, you know, you've – You've got to get in and uh, roll your sleeves up and uh, you start making contacts. And you, Look, at the end of the day, if you've got entrepreneurial skills and they're, you know, they're ingrained in you, they're part of the, your DNA, part of that DNA is entrepreneurial DNA is problem solving. And I think the, the key is I've always been a very good I'm, – I'm not, I'm not by any means 
and far from it. I'm certainly no academic guru. I'm not a financial expert. But what I am is I'm a quick learner. Yeah. And I think you can pop me into just about any environment and it doesn't take me too long to very, very quickly grasp what the mechanics are of it, what the, how things work in a, in a particular industry. And by then, don't forget, I'd gone into lots of different industries, you know, I chopped and changed. Mm. And so uh, it was just another challenge, you know, you just you just got out there and, and engaged with the market and with people who were experts in it and you learnt from them and uh, uh, one thing led to another and I actually found that I had a natural talent for it, as it, as it turned out. Maybe it was because of my dad and it wasn't just a passion but I actually was pretty good at it. So... It sort of, you know, it uh, gave me the confidence to keep going. How much impact do you have? You, you, I presume you hire an executive chef. Do you then work with that chef to craft a menu to, or do you just say you hire the best people and say so you guys, guys, girls, do whatever you want? Or? No, 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 not at all, not at all. So my business model is is quite unique. In most circumstances, you might say, look, a, a restaurateur probably does hire the chef and allows the chef to perhaps design the menu and stuff. But in my case, it's quite different. And this this comes from my learnings back in the old days, uh, you know, when I was in the, in, the, in the IT telco sector, that, you know, my model was all about creating a brand. Hmm. I always set the vision and the brand parameters, the idea of what we want to do, what type of operation, what type of restaurant. Uh, and it's not just about just the food. I take a very holistic approach to what the brand should look like. So from an architectural point of view, from an interiors point of view, from, a, from an environmental point of view, and I'm very detailed. I delve right down into the minutiae. And while I do uh, hire, you know, key executives, nowadays, I mean, a lot of these operations are vast operations, you know, like the one at mm. Wall Street is, is 500 people over 300 square metres, three restaurants, four bars, three private rooms. It's the biggest complex of its type in Australia. Hmm. You hire the professionals and you provide them with a brief. In my case, I provide them with a brief that gives them a, you know, a very clear indication of the type of restaurant that, we wanna, that I want to create. Then they go away and they do their research and they bring it back and we work in a very collaborative way. Uh, I don't abdicate my responsibility for the creative side. I am I'm the driver of the creation and uh, and then I use key experts like chefs, etc., and sommeliers and restaurant managers and designers to collaborate and make the concept come to life. I think after after One Fitzroy Street, you then had a an even bigger hit with rejuvenation of of the Botanical Hotel in South Yarra, which was wasn't much before you bought it, and and then you you, you bought it. I think you you hired Paul Wilson, who became a was a very became a better known chef. You, you had, I think, you had an in-house bottle shop at the time. That you eventually won Restaurant of the Year, and and really nothing like it in Australia. Uh, how did you come up with that concept, and how did you not only to come up with the concept, but how did you turn into the, just that incredibly hyped venue that became in the? It was kind of the the place to be in two thousand, two thousand one, two thousand two in Melbourne, and you kind of created nothing really. Yeah, it was. Uh, my vision was that I felt that you know the local pub. Just, I mean. I guess the botanical isn't quite your normal local because it was based in South Yarra, but it's still it was still a local pub. Um, I felt local pubs were uh, a bit, uh, you know, changing. And remember, I grew up in pubs, so yeah. at that time, a lot of pubs were being torn down or converted into either property developments, or they were being 
turned into large pokies venues. And so the, the essence of what the pub was all about when I was a kid, the pub that I grew up in was an accommodation place, but most importantly it was, a, it was an F&B venue, right? There was no yeah. pokies in those days, you know. So the industry had really had been decimated with the, with the advent of um, large-scale um, pubs being turned into pokies venues, and they'd sort of lost their way in terms of F&B. Mm. And I felt that, uh, you know, a large-scale brasserie serving great food, great wine, uh, boutique beers, basically turning a pub into a new modern restaurant was the idea. And it took off, you know. It, it, it had the essence of a pub, but it looked nothing like a pub. It was, mm. looked like a dynamic, amazing, uh, world-class restaurant. And, again, this was, I guess, my background, you know, having lived and travelled overseas and really my background was all about marketing and brand development. You know, the Botanical was the first foray into truly large-scale, world-class, scalable developments that uh, resonated with the public. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it was the, the, probably one of the very first so-called gastro pubs. Uh, that was a concept that was being developed in the UK and it had never really, it hadn't really caught on here yet in Australia. And so I guess the Botanical was almost probably back then one of the very, very first so-called gastro pubs where the food was the centrepiece of the operation as opposed to, you know, the traditional beer swelling counter meal type hmm. operation. There are lots of restaurants, though, lots of great chefs open great restaurants with great food. But you're able to do that, but more importantly, get people to come, which is <laughs> revenue is obviously the most important thing. You can have the most beautiful piece of art. If no one sees it, it doesn't matter. And, and this is the constant story through all your restaurants, but, but Botanical is just such a classic case. How did, you, how did you avoid the tree falling in the woods? How did, people, how did so many people know about the Botanical so quickly? Well, uh, it's a very prominent position. It's on Domain Road. It had a long history. It was a very famous hotel. And so, you know, word of mouth is really, it, it spreads pretty quick, you know. Plus, uh, don't forget, I'm a marketing guy at heart. So yeah. I was able to promote uh, through the media and through, uh, you know, word of mouth and just, you know. I think the other thing too is that it was such a dynamic, vast development. It was, it was simply wasn't just tricking up an old concept. Mm-hmm. It was bringing to the market something totally new and revolutionary and that in itself drove an enormous amount of interest and I think that uh, I've always been one to push the boat right out when it comes to development of a brand. I very rarely, in fact, I never think about doing anything on a a small scale. For me, it's always how can we push the boundaries? How can we create something special? How can we create something unique? How can we create something that's never been done before? So I, I use those as core principles when I'm thinking about developing something. And the botanical was a classic case and example. And I think the old saying is, you know, you build it and they shall come. <laughs> and uh, I think if you always uphold the core principles of excellence in design, excellence in quality, um, excellence in the best talent, then you know, the market usually reacts to it in a positive way. And um, that's been the cornerstone of what I've done all my life, but especially in the hospitality sector with the restaurants. Uh, 
If you look at 80 Collins Street now, I mean, you know, there's no restaurant like that in Australia. In fact, to be honest, there's not a restaurant complex like that anywhere in the world. Mm. And uh, um, I, to be honest, I don't, I, I don't think, uh, you know, a restaurateur anywhere else in the world would be brave enough to, to <laughs> try create something of this scale and of this quality. But, you know, the market's loving it and, you know, there's no everyone's talking about society and yucky. Mm. Um, I think you can't go wrong or you certainly won't be left guessing if you aspire to those principles and you don't compromise. In 2007, Chris sold his beloved botanical for an incredible $15 million. And then a few years later, in 2011, he opened up his hottest restaurant yet. It was called Chin Chin. Every new restaurant that Chris has opened since has come with risks, but risk-taking is very much in Chris's DNA. And in the case of Chin Chin, the risk paid off big time. And if you've ever eaten at Chin Chin, or even seen the queues of people waiting outside their Melbourne or Sydney restaurants, you'll know just how popular it is. And the inspiration behind Chin Chin came from the time Chris spent living in Japan. Because in Japan, restaurants were open all day and night, and Chris thought Australia was ready for something really similar. Our cities were scaling up they were growing by population they, their demographics were changing you know we had we had a huge influx of of uh, southeast asians moved to australia back in the in the 90s and the early 2000s and and that that large immigration boom was continuing and so our, I, I felt that you know our tastes were changing and i felt that melbourne and probably sydney were ready for you know a lot of restaurants that i used to go and experience myself in Tokyo, which were pretty much restaurants that were casual. You could walk in any time of the day or night. Um, you could have an affordable meal, uh, a lot of fun, and uh, it was sort of more emblematic of this sort of dynamic, you know, big city um, environment where, you know, people go and have a, uh, something to eat or have a drink at, uh, at any time of the day. And so that was what Chinchin was all about, deconstructing the restaurant concept you know, just opening an all-day eating house effectively and, and making it accessible from a pricing point of view, but also in a very Australian way, turbocharging the entertainment element, you know, great music, graphics, neon, you know, very energetic, very much like Tokyo. And it came at a time when the internet, you know, social media was just starting to really bubble along and uh, it had a powerful impact on the restaurant because we were able to, for the first time, market the restaurant through social media. Yeah. And uh, I think that sort of really turbocharged the, the, a lot of the success of, uh, of, the, of uh, Chin Chin. I mean, you got a bit of, I'm not sure criticism at the time, but you got a bit of heat for the, the no reservation policy, which was pretty unusual. Uh, now it's a lot more common. Back then it was, it was pretty unusual. What was... Did you ever reconsider that? Was that always something that you, that you sort of had to do, I guess, as part of the concept or did it allow you to generate more profit? What, what, what was sort of the thinking behind doing something so different at the time? You know, when you, when you live in cities like New York and Tokyo and so forth, London, you know, a lot of the casual restaurants, in, uh, you just, you know, you didn't have reservations, just mm. popped in at any time of the day. And uh, that had never really been done before here in Australia. I uh, I wouldn't say I was criticised. There was a few people that would, that carried on about you know <laughs> oh, I can't uh, I need to know what time I'm coming so I can book my babysitter. But there was a whole new market of of diners, in particular young diners that actually loved it. 
They love the idea yeah. of the, the, the flexibility of being able to just pop in. And then it became this phenomenon where people were queuing outside of the restaurant. They still are queuing there today, post the pandemic, you know. There's queues outside Chin Chin. And so, you know, it, I guess it tapped into a new, new um, lifestyle, which was one where we don't always plan what we're doing in advance. And, in fact, we make our decisions in fact, a lot of people today, I think, make their decisions about where they're going to go out to eat uh, only a few few minutes before or half an hour before they want to go. So mm. it, it just tapped into that sort of new market, I guess, where people, as I said to you, don't necessarily plan their lives to the exact, you know, day, many weeks in advance. So we really wanted to move away from that. We wanted to just – we wanted to also bring our prices down. You know, we wanted to make food very affordable. And to do that, we needed to take some cost out of the business and, you know, having call centres and reservations, all that stuff costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So we took yeah. a lot of that cost out by, by, by taking out the reservations. Uh, so, yeah, it was controversial at the time, but, of course, now, you know, it's pretty commonplace, right? I'm not sure how accurate this is, but but so the, the rumor is that certainly pre-COVID that Chin Chin would generate sort of upwards of, of ten million dollars in profit annually. Um, you have to confirm or deny that, but assuming that's that's not that far off, that's sounds like by far the most profitable single site restaurant, probably single site business of any type in Australia. There, there's ASX businesses don't generate that kind of profit. That are that are big businesses. What is it about Chin Chin specifically that just cause this zeitgeist that has been such an incredible business. Forgetting sort of the restaurant element, which is incredible in itself, but just as a as a pure business, this is the Don Bradman of restaurants profitability wise. When most restaurants can can barely make a dollar, you, you, you've turned into this just profit generating machine. Well, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, again, it was uh, it was almost a, a perfect storm. You know, it was all those factors that we talked about where it just happened to tap into uh, a new market, you know, a, 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 a dynamic young market. And it was fueled, turbocharged by social media and the fact that we were able to make food really affordable, delicious food. So if you look at the food industry or restaurants, you know, to be able to make food cheaply, you have to drop the quality. Mm. What we did, which was quite groundbreaking, is we were able to maintain the quality. In other words, still provide you with it. In fact, if anything, we increased the quality. We were able to provide you with a really beautiful dish but at a quite accessible price. Mm. I think that really hadn't been seen before in Australia. Now, to do that, we had to be able to drive volume. Um, uh, That's why we stayed open all day from 11 a.m. And... Early lunch would turn into late lunch, would turn into mid-afternoon dinner, would turn into early dinner, and then people would be still ordering dinner at one or two o'clock in the morning. So, you know, it 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 was able to. Uh, I think it was just the right place at the right time, the right product, uh, revolutionary again. As I said to you, we took a lot of risks, i.e., the reservations. The, the you know the music was it was. Uh, quite different, it was loud, it was boisterous, you know, and a lot of these things were the antithesis of restaurants at the time. Hmm. You know, if, you, if you put your volume, your restaurant volume music up too loud, people used to complain. Yeah. But I think in some ways 
what you saw with Chin Chin is it morphed itself from a restaurant into an entertainment venue. And uh, I think that also captured people's imaginations like no other. You had this incredible success with Chin Chin, then you sort of parlayed that into a series of restaurants. So there's Kong, Hawker Hall, Chin Chin in Sydney, Baby, because you may obviously society now. How similar is the playbook? Have, have you almost got this down to an art where you essentially do a similar thing with a different concept or, or is it, am I oversimplifying it? Each brand now, I mean, now we're probably, I, I guess we're probably the second largest group in the country, restaurant group, that is. You know, we have 1,600 employees. Uh, you know, we're uh, growing exponentially as a business. You know, we're uh, even with the COVID setback, you know, which obviously was a, a challenging time. Mm. Uh, we, we, we're coming out of COVID, you know, with these amazing new brands, and we've got more coming. So it's yeah, we're not we're certainly not a cookie cutter approach. Every brand is bespoke, well considered, well planned. I spend a lot of time and a lot of money, a lot of intellectual resource developing each one of these brands, so that they are unique. They have their own DNA, and I think that you can fall into the trap. When you're, you know, a bigger, bigger business that you tend to just sort of replicate what you think the people might like or what is successful. But I, I'm really, uh, my, my principle is quite the antithesis of that. I'm about creating really individual brands that reflect the market or the community at the time and we constantly evolve and improve them. So we don't, we don't rest on our laurels, so to speak. And we do lots of different things, you know. We, we, we stick to the restaurant model per se, but we create so many different brands, so many different restaurants now with, and each one is bigger and better than the other, that, you know, it, 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 success builds on success. But we certainly don't sit there and sort of have a particular template, as I said to you. It's uh, all about really creating beautiful individual experiences. When you launch a new restaurant uh, or, or your historical restaurants or even society recently, are you funding this purely yourself or do you tend to have some equity partners in or is it just yourself and, and some sort of third-party debt? How, how does it tend to, to work? Uh, we, we fund it ourselves. You know, there's no equity partners. So this, so I, you know, I think that's part of the success of, our, of my model is that I, I, I don't have to compromise by having to worry about shareholders or you know, raising capital anywhere. I get to to do whatever crazy idea I want. We put I put up my own money, and if it succeeds, it succeeds. If it doesn't, you know, I'm I'm the one that carries the can. But it gives me the creative freedom to do what I want. By 2019, Chris and his group had come up against one of the biggest challenges yet. Their restaurants were expanding, and Chris was probably Australia's most successful restaurateur. But the group was caught up in industry-wide wage issues which rocked Chris personally and the business he spent two decades building. Look, it was a very dark time in the industry. Sadly, my good friend, uh, George Colombaros, uh, you know, didn't survive. And sadly, as a result, 600 people lost their jobs. So I think that uh, the, the so-called wage theft campaign was a marketing tool used by unions to try and drive membership. It was a mischievous and deliberate undermining of poorly drafted legislation which uh, was used to attack employers and it, it claimed a few victims. We all got tainted with the same brush. Of course, at the end of the day, we were found not to, not to have 
done anything illegal, in fact, if anything, we were held up as one of the, by fair work, we were held up as a prime example of one of the best operators in the country, the way we go about our things. So, but then it's spread, of course, beyond the restaurant industry, right across all employers. And the primary cause of it, of course, was poor legislation. There was the fair work legislation, which today there's been some improvement on it, but it's very poorly drafted, very poorly written, difficult for businesses, in particular small businesses, to, to adhere to. And what it did raise, it raised the issue of, uh, of reform that the government, the federal government, uh, has still not really taken the, the bit between the teeth. And um, um, Australia as a nation needs to ensure that it needs to remain competitive. Wage growth needs to continue, but at the same time, businesses need to be able to work within a legislative environment which provides assurity and transparency and None of that was occurring, so it was a it was a dark time. Cost, as I said, quite a few of our friends, my friends, it cost their businesses. So yeah, look, it was. I think we've moved beyond it because uh, uh, it's been seen for what it is, and uh, and I think the government now is starting to recognise that they need to clean up the legislative area, which they're slowly doing. So hopefully, they'll continue to do it. Let's fast forward to to March twenty twenty, and you're you're. Basically, at the peak of your powers, you've got a swath of successful restaurants. You're about to, you're a few months away from opening Society, which is probably your your opus with with Martin and Vicky, and biggest restaurant, as you said, biggest restaurant complex in Australia. And suddenly, this COVID nineteen thing, or I'm not sure it's called COVID at the time, but coronavirus happens, and the world stops. When you first heard about lockdowns and business closures, how did you react? How did your team react? What? How? How manic was it in those first sort of few days? Oh, look, it was pretty challenging. I mean, there was a lot of unknowns. Um, JobKeeper wasn't available at the time. But, uh, yeah, I think it was uh, – look, I talked to a lot of people right across different industries and so forth, and it was a terrible time, you know. Um, mm. It threw everyone into a tailspin, including us. But we, we, uh, we as a business – we are made up of an extraordinary group of people that work in this business and our culture is so strong that our first thought was to protect our employees, not our brands but our employees. And I think that's held us in good stead. You know, during this pandemic, you know, we've, we, we donated food to the emergency services. We donated over 165,000 meals to, to nurses and, and doctors and, and medical mm. working in the, in, the, in, the, in the emergency service sector. I don't think anyone else has done that in their our industry. Yeah. We donated food to, to hospitality workers that weren't entitled to government compensation. Um, you know, we supported international visa workers that were excluded from JobKeeper. We did, mm. we did an enormous amount of things to try and protect our industry and, and, and our people. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that's for us, for me, that made me feel good because I felt we were doing the right thing. And for us as a business, it's held us in good stead because it reinforced our strong culture, which is about putting our employees and our people first. Were there ever any moments, Melbourne's had some unprecedented six lockdowns, 270 days, and you run a business that was almost completely shut. There's a little bit of takeaway, but, but for, for intents and purposes, you, you, impossible to run a profitable business when, you, when you're closed. Were there any periods where you genuinely thought it's just not worth it, I might need to shut something down or things down? No, not really, no. Other businesses undertook mass redundancies. 
we, 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 I'm very proud to say that we didn't do any of that. I was determined to save a thousand jobs. As I said to you, my only real priority was our staff and their well-being, both their physical, financial, and mental well-being as well. By the way, because you know mm. we have with so many different mental issues, mental health issues. So uh, no, not at all, not at any stage, never. You've been a like myself. You've been a, a fairly outspoken critic of of some government policy, especially the Victorian government policy, who's been by far the harshest, um, along with WA, the harshest adherent of, of COVID mania. Um, and coincidentally, uh, you received a, quite a small fine, but a fine nonetheless, I think, on the eve of lockdown six. And finally, the only other person who, who got one was Paul Dimitina, who also happens to be a critic of, of the government. Do you, do you think your public stance impacted you personally in that regard was it or was it a, just a coincidence oh look I, well I, what i can tell you is that my entire life i've lived by as you know we've talked about by some core principles and um i felt that some of the things that had been the state government was doing were a violation of our freedoms and a violation of, of uh so many human rights you know, uh, and I, I felt um, angry and uh, I felt that our industry was first to close down, last to open in many yeah. regards, along with the events industry and the music industry, the arts community. You know, these, these, these industries are, are the heartbeat of our city and they were decimated by, I think, very poor policy making, policy on the run, and, uh, and then I think... Uh, I think what offended me the most was we had a government that refused to listen, you know, refused to uh, – it was more focused on spin and, and playing politics with COVID as opposed to, um, you know, looking after its citizens. It claimed that it was looking after its citizens, but the people that it's actually hurt the most are the most vulnerable. Mm. Hundreds of thousands of small businesses have gone broke. 300,000 people have lost their jobs and their livelihood. Uh, uh, the mental health crisis – Amongst, in particular, our children is 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 a shameful part of our history, uh, and we we will live with that for for many years to come. And uh, I I, uh, I was angered by all that, and uh, uh, I wanted to do what I've always done in my whole life, which is to stand up for what I think is right. And I, I'm not, I, and, I, and if people wanted to criticise me for it, that's absolutely their democratic right. Because I believe in a democracy and I believe in free speech and I believe that you are allowed to protest and you're allowed to challenge something if you think something's not right in a, in a, in a lawful manner. But, uh, you know, we had a government that had a glass jaw, wasn't prepared to accept any criticism uh, because they knew they were screwing things up. I think at the end of it, I've had nothing but support from hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Victorians. Uh, uh, I received over 200,000 messages over the course of the 18 months uh, in messages of support. So, and not one negative message. So, yeah. maybe that speaks for itself, right? Yeah. You've had these these two incredible careers, really. You had the, your sort of IBM Primus career, which was, which was an incredible success. And then you've had your, your hospitality career, uh, which is, and probably almost similar sort of. 15 years, 15 years, you, you and you, you and Terry become this incredibly successful, well-known couple. You've got second biggest restaurant empire in the country. I've read that you plan on opening another six restaurants potentially. What, what's the future for, 
for Chris? Well, what, where do you see yourself in 10, 20 years? Are you going to be opening your restaurant still? Do you, do you ever slow down? Will you do something else? What's, where, does, where do you think it ends? Well, who knows what the future holds. Uh, I haven't got really a crystal ball. I, all I can tell you is that um, my father taught me at a very young age that the word retirement is not really something that an entrepreneur can understand or, or, or sympathise with. So uh, I'm just going to keep doing what I love doing and, yeah. uh, until I physically probably can't do it anymore. So God knows when that is. But let's, uh, let's hope that uh, uh, we can keep pushing along as long as people still want to come to my restaurants, I'll be <laughs> opening them and, and creating amazing places for people to come. And, uh, and it comes at a time as well where our city's been so battered and bruised, you know, it's had a wrecking ball through it really. And uh, the, our rest, my restaurants and, and, in fact, the whole restaurant industry, you know, it's slowly rebuilding and I think it's more important than ever that we continue to now, you know, create these places open outdoors so that people can once again enjoy the beautiful elements of going out and dining and socializing you know meeting their girlfriend meeting protects their, their future partner having fun with just friends and work colleagues and getting back to some normality and restaurants will play a very key role in doing that and so there's uh, i'm determined to rebuild this city um, despite the terrible uh, lockdown that quite frankly as it's turned out has proven to be a total failure of government policy. And that was Chris Lucas from Lucas Restaurants. And just how popular are Chris Lucas's restaurants? Well, it's estimated that every year more than a million people dine at one of them. This makes Chris Australia's most influential and successful restaurateurs ever. You've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producer is Lindsay Gray. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast. Listener.